We started a series a few weeks ago called Love Isn't. And the reason why I wanted to call it that is because you know, we live in a culture that writes songs about love. We, we write books about love. We have movies about love. Our culture is just inundated with what we think love is. And, you know, and what's wild is, is that, you know, we, we look at scripture and the Bible says that God is love. It doesn't just say that he loves, but he is love. And one of the challenges that we have, we said this a few weeks ago, but you'll hear me repeat this just because I think we have to embrace this, is one of the challenges we have is that we, a lot of times we think we know what love is. And then when we hear that God is love, we say, oh, well, God is love and this is what love is. And therefore God must be like this. And so we miss, we miss the point. We miss the point. And that causes sometimes, because we think we already know what, God, uh, what love is, that then we assume that God must be like our definition of love. Instead of going to God and letting him reveal to us what love is, and then knowing, oh, that's what love is. Not that's who God is. That's what love is because God is love. Then we begin to understand it. So we looked the first week and we realized that love isn't indifferent. And what I mean by that is, is in our culture a lot of times, we feel like God loves us, and so because he loves us, he's indifferent to what we do. And again, I've said in no relationship does it work that way. I've used this as an example, and, um, and you guys you don't chuckle. You sound shocked whenever I use this. I, and I'm saying this doesn't, this shouldn't happen, so I just want to make sure you get that. But, you know, uh, Tina and I, we've been married 35 years. You know, uh, I, I love her. I love her more now than I did when we were first married and that type of thing. And so to get that, that... Um, that I don't look at her and say, you know, babe, I really love you and because I love you so much, just date other guys. I mean, that's not what love is, right? Thank you. And so you guys get it. The rest of you are still kind of like shocked, like, did he say that? Anyway, so, so no, but love, when we, when we really love somebody, we're not indifferent to their behavior. We're more engaged with it. And then we talked about this, that love isn't a feeling, that it's a decision, it's a choice that we make. And then last week we talked about this, that love isn't fragile, you know, to love, I mean, to really love, it's, you know, how many times do we forgive? Seven times? No, man, 70 times seven. There's, there's a strength to love. It's messy. It's, you know, it, it, you know it, it, can, it can be challenging at times, it, you know, but it's not fragile. And so today we're going to talk about another thing, that love isn't afraid. So you ready to get started? Yeah, well, okay, well, five of you. Good. Okay, well, go ahead and grab hold of your Bibles. And let's say this. Say, this is my Bible. I have what it says I have. I can do what it says I can do. I declare this morning, my mind is alert. My heart is receptive. I'll be taught the word of God. And I'll never be the same again. Open up your Bibles, if you would, to 1 John chapter 4. If you're still learning your way around the Bible, there's an Old Testament and a New Testament. The Old Testament starts with the book of Genesis. The New Testament starts with the book of Matthew. And 1 John is in the book of Matthew. And so the best way to get to 1 John is go to the end of your Bible, where Revelation is. And then the book before that is Jude. And then one before that is 3 John, then 2 John, and then 1 John. 1 John chapter 4. While you're turning there, I want to say hi to everybody that's online engaging with us. Thanks for engaging with us. We're glad that, uh, that you're staying connected and engaged with us. 1 John chapter 4, verse 17. Man, this, this book, I mean, it just mentions God's love a lot, what it looks like. The fourth chapter is really, really engaged with it. If you remember in verses 7 and 8, it says that, you know, that love one another because God is love. He that loves not knows not God for God is love. And 1 John 4, verse 17 says this. And as we live in God, listen to this, as we live in God, our love grows more perfect. So love is something that grows, our recognition of it, our understanding of it. It grows. You know, it's a fruit of the Spirit, and fruit 
grows, it matures as time goes on. So as we live in him, our love grows more perfect. It's, it matures. So we will not be afraid. Everybody say afraid. afraid. So we will not be afraid on the day of judgment. So as we live in his love, we become more confident in his love. We trust in it. One of the verses says we trust in his love. And we become more confident. We're not afraid of him on the day of judgment. But we can face him with confidence because we live, we live life like Jesus here in this world. Such love has no fear. Say no fear. It has no fear. Such love has no fear because perfect love expels all fear. If we are afraid, it's for fear of punishment. And this shows that we have not fully experienced his perfect love. We love each other because he loved us first. So it says this right here that as we start out, you know, with the love of God, that as we get to know it, we, we, it becomes perfect in us or we mature in it. And the more mature the more we grow in his love, first of all, it impacts our relationship with him, that we're not afraid of him. Now, let me just say this. If if you don't listen to anything else, I really want you to engage in like the next three minutes because it'll help people on both sides of the coin. That, That there is a fear of God. And what I mean by that, it's not a terror. It's a reverence. It's a, oh, this is him. Oh, it's God. And there's kind of this, He's, he's different. He's set apart. And we, we acknowledge who we're with. And we listen differently. We respond differently because it's, it's God. So that's what the fear of the Lord looks like. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs says this, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. It's to hate it. And so it's, it just impacts the way we hear him, the way we respond to his presence and to his stuff. There's another fear, though, and it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a terror, a fright, afraid. And that's not what we're talking about here. My dad, when he was, you know, he was raised, his, his dad was like a worship leader in a church, and uh, he was the oldest of four. You know, many of you remember my Uncle Jim, who was a part of this church for years, passed away a year ago. He's my dad's last surviving sibling. But they were all raised in that family. My dad was 15, and his mother passed away. And then a few months later, his dad passed away. So he's 15 when he lost both of his parents completely. They, illnesses that were unrelated to each other. It's pretty hard, you know, when you're a 15-year-old kid and you lose your folks. But he lived at a time where it was, you know, there were just things like they, there, were, there were people that were saying, look, if you go to the, if you go to the movies that you're, um, you know, God's not going to be pleased with you. You know, if you go to the movies, God's not going to be pleased with you. And so he lived in this fear of that. Well, he, he told me, he said one day his dad was actually feeling a little better, and he went to a movie, and when he came back, his dad had gotten worse, and for years he blamed himself. Well, you know, God was mad at me because I went to the movie. That wasn't the case at all. But he lived with that. And so for the longest time, he had this picture of God. When you talk about the fear of the Lord, he didn't view it as reverence. He was terrified of him. And it really impacted his ability to serve him and to worship him. He would, you know, I mean, he went to counseling and, you know, saw a therapist and all that kind of stuff because he just lived in this constant fear of God. When he began to understand who God really is and that the fear the Lord is talking about there is not this terror. He wasn't terrified of him. But he was somebody that he loved him. God loved him, and so he leaned into that love with a recognition of who it is that's loving him. 
And so when we grow in the love of God, when we understand that, we begin to experience it, his love grows in us, then as we go in his presence, we have a confidence, not an arrogance, but a confidence when we go into him because we have confidence in what Jesus has done for us. His redemption is enough. So we can go in and pray, not based upon my goodness, but based upon what Jesus has done. So the love of God in us begins with our relationship with God. It's, it's fearless. Love is fearless. In his presence, again, it's not arrogant. It's, there's a humility. We know we're talking to God. And that impacts us. We're talking to somebody that loves us, that wants to be engaged in our life. And so we pray and we talk with him and, and, and we take our brokenness to him. You know, we, that's where we go to confess our sins. And the Bible says he's faithful and just to forgive us. He forgives us. He forgives, he forgives me. You know, I have, to, I have to become more confident in that. There are times where I've asked to be forgiven for the same sin, like, because I didn't feel forgiven. But I, when I have confidence in his love and I go to him, then I have a confidence. He, not only did he hear me, but he forgave me. And so number one is this is that love is fearless. Let's look at number two. If you would go with me, if you would, to Ephesians 4. You're in 1 John, and Ephesians is a few books before 1 John. Like if you were starting at the beginning of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4, this was a letter written by a guy named Paul to a church at Ephesus. So he's writing these things to them, telling them about their relationship with Jesus. And then he begins to share some different things as far as what that looks like lived out. In their life. And so Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, he's talking about when Jesus was raised from the dead, that he, that he gave gifts to humanity. And it says, verse 11, it says, Now these are the gifts that Christ gave to the church. So he gave these gifts to the church the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and teachers. So these are ministry gifts that he gave to the church, to the body of Christ. So many of you may not realize this, but I'm actually a gift to you. <laughs> You're welcome. I know some of you want to want to know, hey, are there any returns? No, I'm it. Okay, so somebody said, do we ever vote for you? I'm like, every Sunday you show up, you voted. I'm going to be your pastor today. So, so if you hear somebody say like, that guy thinks he's God's gift to that church. Well, actually he is. And so you know, the Bible says so. And, no, I'm just kidding. Anyway, those of you who know me know that I'm messing around. Uh, those of you that don't know me will probably leave here and go, that guy's such a jerk. Anyway, and those of you who know me say, well, yeah, he is. So it says now, now the... <laughs> Now, these are the gifts Christ gave to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers. Their responsibility. And you're like, I've always wanted to know what it is you do. So you're going to tell you right here. I mean, because you preach on Sunday. What do you do the other six days of the week? I just play golf. No, anyway, um, their responsibility is to equip, equip God's people to do his work and build up the church. So part of the responsibility of those ministry gifts is to equip you. That one of the reasons why it's important that we show up here is you're equipped. You're equipped, not just in the message. People say, well, I can, you know, I can be equipped by the message. Well, you can. You can hear information. But there's something powerful about interacting with community as well. And so it's not just the message. And I don't want to minimize that. I think that matters. But there is this engaging that takes place. And so by giving you opportunity and that type of thing, it's equipping you, preparing you. And this is what it's equipping you for, preparing you for, to do his work and build up the church. In other words, my job is to equip you to recognize what your gifting is, what your calling is, what it is that God would have you to do, and it builds up the work. I'm not, you, you know, that, that, that we're not using people 
to build a work. We're using a work to build people. And so it, it equips you, it grows you. And so uh, it goes on to say this, and it's God's work. To do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ. Then he says, this will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's son that we will be mature in the Lord. So he said, when, eventually when unity comes to the whole body, then that's a sign of maturity. We're not looking for reasons to be divided. But maturity is a result of unity. Measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. Then he says, then we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever that they sound like the truth. So he said part of maturing is, is that there's not all this dissension and division. And another thing is that we're not easily fooled. Man, we, we live in a culture and a time where there's so much information. I mean, we have, you know, the internet, we just have so many websites and and people that, you know, are such experts on things that they've never been a part of. I'm amazed at how people that don't go to church, have never gone to church, how all of a sudden they're experts in what the church should be. Well, I think that that's exactly what a church should be. How would you know you've never been? You don't go. And yet people, oh, yeah, I, I agree. Well, good. Now that's what the blind leading the blind is. That's what it looks like. But the thing that happens is, he says, as we grow, then we're not easily deceived by, by winds of doctrine. It says they sound like the truth. They're so clever that they sound like the truth. One of the movements taking place in the body of Christ right now is a thing called deconstruction. And people are attacking the basic tenets of Christian faith that have been around since the early church. They're the things that the apostles taught in the early church, and people are attacking those things. People that are further removed from the life of Jesus on the earth than those guys were that were laying the foundation of what the church is supposed to believe, centuries later saying that they know more than those guys did. I mean, it does, I mean for any logical thing, it makes no sense at all. But it's so emotionally and intellectually appealing that people, they're, they're, they're like swept into it. Well, one of the signs of growth is that we're not so easily lured away by that stuff. We're not, we're not listening to people about what the church should be like that don't even go to church. How would they know? It's kind of like me before I had kids. I could tell you how to parent. I knew how to fix your kid. And God's trick on me was he gave me a kid that wasn't like anybody else's kids. All the things I would have used to fix your kid didn't work on my kids. I knew a lot more about parenting after I had kids. I, I knew a lot more about marriage, you know, I mean, after I got married. We'll stop right there. And, just, <laughs> and, so, and so, you know, I mean, we, we begin to realize, you know, that these are the things so, and so that we're not easily pulled away. But it keeps on going here and it says this. We'll only be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever that they sound like the truth. Instead, instead of that, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of the body, the church. So one of the signs of maturity is, is that we're no longer afraid to speak the truth, that we speak the truth. You know, And the truth sometimes, man, it's... It's not always comfortable. We, you know, the, in our culture, you think about how people, what they use to filter whether it's true or not. You know what some people use filters filter true or not? Does it make me happy? Well, if it makes me happy, it must be true. And if it doesn't make me happy, it must not be true. That's such a stupid filter. 
People told me that's a harsh word. Okay, that's a really dumb filter. It's a dumb filter. Happiness, is, it's a poor compass to decide what truth is. Uh, others, others have said, well, you know, that it's, the truth is different. I have my truth and you have your truth. Really? What's two plus two look like in your world? In mine, it's four. And here, here's the challenge with truth is that truth does not care about my feelings. It's, it, it has an edge to it. I, I don't get to shape it. It shapes me. It's not bendable. And so we have so many people in our culture that the minute that they don't understand something, that automatically they deem it not to be true. Or if it makes them feel uncomfortable, they deem it not to be true. Or if it requires them to make a change in how they live or what they think or what they believe or what they say, they deem it not to be true. But truth doesn't work that way. It shows up and it brings about this, this, this steeliness with it that's unbendable, unchanging. And it sh if I lean into it, it shapes me. I don't shape it. It shapes me. If I can shape it or bend it, then it's not true. It, it shapes me. And there's just, you know, sometimes people have told me the truth, man, it's irritated. It's irritated me. They told me the truth about me. You know what? Didn't make it untrue just because I didn't like it. Hey, you quit telling me the truth. <laughs> I remember when I was, I've shared this with you, I was doing, uh, I was just working in a, a Sunday school class. And this guy was teaching junior high and he had me, he had me speak one Sunday and it was, it was horrible. And uh, you're like, worse than this? Well, yeah, way worse. And so I was, it was horrible. And so I remember that he asked me like a month later, hey, do you want, you want to speak again? And I'm like, gosh, you don't like these kids. And I'm like, okay, yeah, I will. And I remember when I'm going up there, this junior high girl, you know how kind they can be. She says to a friend of hers, she said, is he going to speak again? I hate it when he speaks. He's so boring. You know, and so, and so yeah, I know, right? I mean, I wish one of you guys would have been there. I would have given you 20 bucks to like work away. But anyway, so, but, you know, I, I couldn't look at her and go, hey, this is a church. You stop telling the truth in here. No, man, she was saying something. And I, she was right. I had been boring. But a lot of times we think because it's uncomfortable or because it, it doesn't feel good to me that, you know, it's not true. That's not how truth works. The filter's not my feelings. But it says this, that there's another thing that truth should come along with, that we speak the truth. We don't just speak the truth, but we speak it in love. There's something powerful about when somebody sits down with us and we know that they love us. We know that they love us and that they've... They've said the truth to us. It still may be uncomfortable, but because the messenger is proven in our life, because we know that they love us, then we're able to hear them. You know, one of the things, there was a guy in the Old Testament by the name of David, and he was a king. Many of you are familiar with this account, this incident, and he had an affair. He committed adultery, and, and you know, and then God wanted to speak to him. And I've said this before, when God wants to do something in our life, he puts a person in it. So he sent a man named Nathan unto David. Well, why would he choose Nathan? Well, they were related to each other. They, were, they knew each other. He didn't just send some random stranger. He sent a man into David's life named Nathan, and Nathan confronted him about a sin. And because they had a relationship, and Nathan was telling him the truth, but it was somebody that loved him, that knew him, that, Nate, that David's response was he repented of his sin. And so, for us, we have to understand this, 
that love isn't afraid to tell the truth. Now, I've said before that by personality, some of us, man, that telling the truth is not an issue. It's like, and we use it as a hammer. And you're like, hey, did you tell them what they need to hear? I told them the truth. Well, how can you tell? <laughs> they're, they're knocked around over there. They're not getting up. They're kind of like, oh, my gosh. And there's others. I'm probably following this other category, and that is, is that we're kind of mercy-minded. And what did, you, did you tell them the truth? And, well, I told them I love them, and that's true. Yeah, but did they, did they get any correction? Why? Well, ask them. Well, what was that about? Well, I, I know he loves me. I, maybe I did something wrong. He said he forgave me. I'm not really sure what for, but I mean, you know, so forgive me. But what brings about real change is when those two things are combined together, when love and truth are together. Proverbs 16, 6, by mercy and truth, iniquity is purged. It says this about Jesus. He was full of grace and truth. Those things almost feel like they're in contradiction of each other, that they conflict with each other. But the truth of the matter is, is that they bring about real changes. When you show up with the truth and the love of God, that Jesus said in John 8, he said this, he goes, that you'll know the truth and the truth will make you free. Proverbs 16, 21 in the American Standard Version says this, that the sweetness of the lips increases learning. And so it's by saying those things from a heart of love. It's, it's not not telling the truth, but it's telling the truth because we love that person. Not because we're mad at them, because I, I've heard this thing so many times and it's so dumb and why do people keep saying this? And so I'm gonna really let you have it between the eyes. No, that doesn't bring about change. What brings about change is, hey, I care about you. I care about you and I don't want you to keep going down this path. People have said before, you know, that, that we're not supposed to share the love of God with people. We're not supposed to tell people about Jesus and who he is. Man, we're called to be tellers. We're called to go and share our faith. And, and you know, I remember when I read about the guy, there was a guy in, in the gospel of Mark that was, he was possessed and he ran to Jesus and Jesus asked that there was an evil spirit in him. He said, man, we're a legion because there's a lot of us. And he casts evil spirits out of the man. And the guy, when he came to his right mind, he's like, take me with you. And Jesus said, no, don't come with me. He said, man, go home. Tell your friends and family what great things the Lord's done for you. What's wild is Jesus went back into that region later on, and it says all of them from all the area came out to hear him. Well, I'd have to think that guy made an impact on his neighbors. I love the guy in John chapter 9 that was, he was born blind. And so all of a sudden, Jesus healed him, and he had all these religious people around him asking him questions. And I know some of you, man, since you've had an encounter with Jesus, you want to tell people what he's done for you, but you're like, what if they ask me a question I won't know? Well, let me, re let me just kind of remove the mystery. They will. Well, thanks, preacher. What do I do? Just tell your story. Do what this guy did. They'd ask him questions. What he said was, I don't know. All I know is I was blind, and now I can see. You can't argue with a changed story. You can't argue with a changed life. But the love of God, when the truth is spoken out with the heart of love, it has an impact to transform and change lives and break through the walls of lies that have been set up through deception that's been placed either through our own pain and experiences or by what we hear told over and over again in culture, that the love of God brings about real change in us as the truth is heard. It, the truth shows up, and it breaks through that hard wall of deception. It breaks through that hard wall of, of you know, just trying to defend our position because the love of God is there with it, and it's undeniable that if we're going to be honest, when we hear the love of God and the truth spoken from a heart of love, that, that in order, we just have to refuse 
to be a hearer of the truth at that point. And so number two is this, is that love isn't afraid to tell the truth. Let's look at number three, and we'll close with this. Go with me, if you would, to Luke 10, and we'll start with verse 25. Luke is the third book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Luke 10. This guy, he, he interviewed people that were f- followers of Jesus, eyewitnesses of Jesus. He was a doctor. He was actually of the four Gospels, which are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He was the only non-Jew to write a Gospel. He was a Gentile. And so in Luke chapter 10, verse 25, he gives this account one day, An expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart. Everybody say, all your heart. All your your soul. Say, all your soul. All your your strength. Say, all your strength. And all your mind. Say, all your mind. So when it's all, what is it? It's all. Now, in the Greek word, I looked up that word, all there means all. And so... You didn't know that, did you? So anyway, it means like there's not anything withheld. It's, you can't reserve it. It's, it's done. It's not partial. It's complete that we love God. He said that the first commandment is this. And so he said, the, uh, he, he said with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, he said, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him. I think it's interesting, just kind of a side thought, that if, you know, Jesus, the, the people that confronted him the most were the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, and that type of thing. And the wild thing about it is, is that if you were to ask them, if you were to give them like a doctrinal statement, probably in so many ways, Jesus and the Pharisees agreed doctrinally. Where they disagreed is how it was supposed to be applied and what the purpose of it was. Because Jesus applied it with a love for God and a love for people. And so, the love for the Father and love for people. And so, he goes on to say here, right, Jesus told him, do this and you will live. The man wanted to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied with a story, a Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho. Now, when Jesus puts details in there, he does it for a reason. Again, consider this, that he was talking to a predominantly Jewish crowd, and he said a Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho. This road was a treacherous road. There were a lot of robbers and bandits on there, and so people were constantly being robbed. So automatically, they're, they're leaning into a story they identify with. So he said there was a Jewish man that was, uh, was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed over to the other side of the road and passed him by. Now, we don't know why that is. It could be because, man, this is a treacherous road. They may jump me too, or he may have had, we don't know what the reason was, but he just didn't help. Um, a temple assistant walked by, walked over, and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. So another guy that worked at the temple saw him, another Jewish guy, he saw him, and he, he passed by, he didn't help him. And then he says this, then a despised Samaritan came along. A despised Samaritan. What's interesting that Jesus would use that terminology, but again, you have to understand the crowd. Understand this, that historically the Jews and the Samaritans despised each other. They had centuries of harassment and conflict that took place between the two groups of people. They didn't like each other. And so there was a lot of pain that the Samaritans had created the Jews, and there's some pain the Jews had created for the Samaritans. So in no story that a Jew would tell would a Samaritan ever be the hero. 
it would always be okay for them to be the villain. And yet Jesus was telling this story because the Jews viewed, felt like the Samaritans weren't there for them, that they'd turned their backs on, they couldn't trust them, and that, you know, they despised them, and that, and that the Samaritans felt the same way. So, so, you know, of course the Samaritans are going to help him, but here's what Jesus said about it. A despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now, which of these three would, would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? Jesus asked. The man replied, the one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. Go and do the same. In other words, he was saying, look, man, he said, this Samaritan was the one that showed him love. Who was neighbor to him? He said, the Samaritan. Well, Jesus earlier said, when he asked the guy, he said, what's the great commandment? The guy said, love God with everything. Don't withhold anything with everything you have and love your neighbor as yourself. And so right here, he's revealing to us that love, when it's done like it's supposed to, that it's not withheld. You know, so many times in our injuries and in our hurt, we withdraw ourselves and we, we pull ourselves back because we realize that love isn't safe. I'm not saying we shouldn't use wisdom as we, as we move forward and that type of thing, but some people have gone way beyond that. You've been hurt and all of a sudden you've withdrawn yourself. You've pulled yourself out of the game. You've set yourself up in the stands never to be a part of again. Some of you long to get to be, some of you that are single long to be married someday, hoping that you'll find somebody. And yet on the other hand, you sworn you'll never expose yourself to be hurt like the last person hurts you. That's not how love works. It's risky. Some of you have been hurt in church. You're not near who you were at one time as far as your involvement in the community of a congregation. Because you were genuinely hurt, you were disappointed, somebody betrayed you, somebody used you, somebody didn't appreciate you, somebody lied to you. So as a result of that, you've pulled yourself back. Over and over again, we see in the scripture, whenever Jesus, you know, when he would talk about situations, talk about circumstances, that, that one of the things that took place is that he never told us how to keep from being hurt. He never said, look, if you do this, nobody will ever hurt you again. What he did do was tell us what to do when we were hurt. And he never once said, disengage. I shared with you the story of my dad, man. He was, he was such a good father to me. And when I was little, man, we went to church every Sunday. Every Sunday we went. And as I told you before, on Saturday, we would go to this place, just me and him. And I didn't go because I wanted to. I went because he drugged me down there. And he would go in and clean that thing up. And nobody was around. There weren't any pictures of him on Facebook or anything like that. Nobody else knew that he did it. Somebody wanted to know one time we had a church key. And I'm like, as a kid, I'm like, because he's the only one that cleans the place up. And he would like, he would dust the pews and he, he would wipe them down. And he brought in a buffer and he'd buff the floor. And I mean, that was every week that he didn't get paid, didn't get paid for. It's just what he did. And there was a pastor there that became his friend and they were good buddies. And as time went on, there became some tension between the pastor and another guy in leadership. And somehow the nomination got involved and they ended up removing the pastor. My, my dad was angry and he was hurt. He was never the same again. He came to church. He loved Jesus. But he just wasn't going to put himself out there anymore. And it breaks my heart when I think about it because he had so much to offer. 
It cost him so much. He still went. But he let the devil lie to him and convince him that you're better off being safe. And there's two lies we buy into. One is, is that we lose sight of the fact that, yes, you've been hurt. Yes, you've been hurt. Yes, somebody's hurt you. On the other side of it is those that also you've hurt somebody. As human beings, we're not exempt from being on the other side of the coin, and we've been on both sides of the coin. The second thing is, the second lie is that it's better, it's better back there. That's what love does. There's no fear in love. It's not afraid of being hurt again. It's not afraid of being taken advantage of again. It's not afraid of being lied to again. It's not afraid of being disappointed again. I've had to say, I'll say this again and again. When you love somebody that's hurt me, you're not betraying me. When I love somebody that I don't agree with what they're doing, it's not me affirming what they're doing. If you're looking for a safe way to love people, it's not there. Ask Jesus. He was falsely accused. He was arrested. One of the people that's closest to him betrayed him. One of the people that just within, you know, in one moment says, I'll never deny you. With just a few hours later, denies him, lies to a teenage girl. He's just so intimidated and runs. And when Jesus needs him the most, he turns around and looks. He's not there. Has people, you know, rolling dice for his clothes. If we're doing this right, it's not easy. It takes courage. And we're able to do it because we experience the love of God. And we realize how fearlessly he loves us. He fearlessly loves me. He leans in. At my worst, it says that scarcely for a good person would somebody dare to die. But when I was yet a sinner, at my worst, he died for me. When the rest of the world is leaving, that's when Jesus shows up. There's no fear in love. The minute we get hurt or wounded, the devil wants to come along and once that becomes our identity, we become, we're always the person that was hurt in a relationship. We were always a person that was hurt in a friendship. We're always a person that was hurt by a spouse. We're always a person that was hurt by our kids, hurt by our parents. Always a person that was hurt by a pastor, hurt by a church. And we walk around that identity for the rest of our life, and all it is is a thief to who God has created us to be and what he's called us to do, and there's not a safe way to do it. Love's fearless. And you can't kind of do it. It's with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. If, if you partial out, if you withhold it, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. What if they hurt me again? They will. They will. What life are you going to live? One that wastes every second, every minute, every hour, every day, every week, every month, every year of your life. Sitting back as a hermit, isolating yourself because you were hurt the last time you got out there. 
only to come to the end of your race, the end of your life as you cross the finish line and realize how empty that safe seat was. The reality of it is that the only life that you begin to recognize and that you embrace is the one that calls you to reach out into a messy, dark, broken world and love people that least deserve it. Because God loves me when I least deserve it. Love's not afraid. Love's not numb. It's not feelingless. It still, it still experiences pain. But when it's God's love, there's just a strength in it. I think it's wild. You think about Jesus at the cross. That the thing he said was, he said, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And, and Stephen, in, in the book of Acts, I think Acts chapter 8, who was a follower of Jesus, he'd experienced the love of God so much that as he began to declare to them who Jesus is, they got so mad and were so convicted, they began to pick up rocks and began to stone him with the rocks. And it says, while they were stoning him, he said the very same thing Jesus did. Forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. While they were stoning him. It's messy. You're going to be used. You're going to be taken advantage of. You're going to be lied to. You're going to be disappointed. Betrayed, hurt. But you'll experience the presence of God in a way you never have before. You'll show God that he can trust you because when everybody else would back away, you lean in. And he gives you the things that are hard. Not because he's punishing you, but because he can trust you. Love of God's not safe. Just ask Jesus. Love doesn't hold back because of fear. I want us to do this. I want us to bow our heads and close our eyes for just a minute. And let's just spend a moment with God and just, maybe you're in a hard place right now. And it's just good for you just there in your heart to just confess Romans 5, 5, that God's love has been given to me. His love has been given to me. 1 John 4, 4, that the greater one lives in you. The Holy Spirit, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit lives on the inside of you. The greater one lives in you. There's no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. And this story that Jesus told, that to the man that was hurt before the man helped him, he was a despised Samaritan. heard somebody say this one time that the first two guys, when they saw the Samaritan, they asked themselves, they didn't help him because they asked this question, what will, help him, what will happen to me if I help him? That wasn't the question the Samaritan asked. He has this question, what will happen to him if I don't? Let's just spend a moment with God and just let him speak to our hearts. Let his presence transform us. Let his presence challenge us and convict us and draw us. Let us be led by him and not flinch whenever he leads us to a hard place to love somebody. 
Let's just spend a moment with God.